This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The KGB was the biggest spy agency in history. At the height of the Cold War, it had more than half a million officers working around the world. They were pretty good at spying, but they excelled at subversion. In 1957, the KGB created a new department to undermine America. Department D. D as in disinformation. The Department of Disinformation was the world's first fake news factory. It printed phony U.S. government documents that made America look monstrous. It planted them in media outlets friendly to Moscow. The lies then spewed into America like a toxic cloud. The KGB's goal was to defame the United States in the eyes of the world and to destroy the American people's confidence in their own government. The first big scoop that Moscow's fake news fabricators produced appeared in an East German newspaper in 1957. It was a phony letter to President Eisenhower, supposedly written by the mega-millionaire Nelson Rockefeller, a man who later became governor of New York and then the vice president of the United States. An authority on Latin American affairs himself, the New York governor calls the situation with Castro's dictatorship dangerous to America's security and urges all citizens to support the president. Rockefeller the personification of capitalism, appeared to be pushing a plan for world domination, a scheme in which the U.S. would use economic aid to secure military and political control over nations in Asia, Africa, and Latin America. This letter was quoted in papers all over the world. There was a grain of truth at the core of this lie, which made it work all the better. Over the years, the Soviet disinformation campaigns grew more sophisticated, more ambitious. In 1967, the KGB planted a story in a left-wing Italian newspaper alleging a connection between the CIA and Clay Shaw, an American businessman. The story pointed to a dark conspiracy behind the assassination of President Kennedy. It hinted that the CIA had killed JFK. The story was picked up in Pravda, the official Communist Party paper in Moscow, and the lie ricocheted around the world. It led the New Orleans district attorney, Jim Garrison, to prosecute Shaw for the CIA plot to kill Kennedy. Arrested this evening in the district attorney's office was Clay Shaw. Mr. Shaw will be charged with participation in a conspiracy to murder John F. Kennedy. The trial was a tragic farce. Shaw was acquitted in less than an hour. The case was later dramatized by Oliver Stone, 
in his movie, JFK. The intelligence community murdered their own commander-in-chief. Is that what you're saying? I'll throw you one better, Bill. Maybe Oswald didn't even pull the trigger. By the end of the 1970s, the Department of Disinformation had grown into a full-fledged battalion, 15,000 officers with a budget of $4 billion, the equivalent of $12.5 billion today. The department was just one among many branches of the KGB, but its budget was bigger than the CIA's, and it had more people than the CIA had spies. In September of 1980, the White House called a news conference to display and denounce a newly discovered KGB forgery. The White House has asked the Justice Department and the Central Intelligence Agency to investigate what it calls a forged presidential memorandum. As President Jimmy Carter's press secretary explained, the document was a phony, top-secret presidential memorandum that depicted Carter as a vicious racist. This is the document, dated March 1978, entitled Presidential Review Memorandum 46, subject Black Africa and the U.S. Black Movement. The KGB had produced a counterfeit National Security Council report and planted it in an African-American newspaper in San Francisco called The Sun Reporter. It ran under the headline, Carter's Secret Plan to Keep Black Africans and Black Americans at Odds. The document suggests that what the administration really wants is to maintain white rule in Africa, and it recommends, among other things, that the FBI collect sensitive information on African leaders at the UN, and that a special program be designed to stimulate dissension between successful educated blacks and the poor. The Soviet news agency, TASS, picked up the article and sent it to Soviet embassies, which then distributed it around the world. By this time, thanks to a few KGB defectors, the CIA knew about the power of the Department of Disinformation. It had an idea of how corrosive its lies could be. But no one in the government of the United States had ever done much about it. Then, in 1981, America began to counterattack against fake news from Moscow. I'm Tim Weiner, and this is Whirlwind. In this week's episode, we'll hear how a small group of American intelligence officers, diplomats, and experts got together to fight disinformation. Their goal was to call out the KGB's lies and to help Americans see disinformation as a danger to democracy. I've been reporting and writing about secrets and spycraft for decades. I just published a book called The Folly and the Glory, America, Russia, and Political Warfare. And political warfare is what we're all about here at Whirlwind. It's war without bombs, tanks, and armies. It's the war of spies and lies. But the phrase political warfare doesn't translate directly into Russian. They call it active measures. And in 1981, the United States started a program to neutralize it. The Active Measures Working Group brought together people from the State Department, the CIA, the FBI, 
the Pentagon, and the National Security Council. Together, they set out to Truth Squad, the KGB. Hardly anyone knows about the Active Measures Working Group today, but it was one of the most successful operations of the Reagan administration. President Ronald Reagan was an amiable Hollywood actor and a fierce cold warrior. He thought that America could triumph over the Soviet Union in the Cold War on his watch. And thousands of young Reaganauts came to Washington to join the battle after he was inaugurated in January 1981. Ronald Reagan was like the little boy in the court that came out and said that the naked emperor is wearing no clothes. That's John Lanchofsky. He was an ardent young conservative and one of the few Americans who had actually studied the history of Soviet active measures. We had had a succession of presidents who were censoring themselves about Soviet human rights violations, about their military buildup, about their subversion, about their espionage. We had all these summit meetings where they were kissing each other and having champagne toasts and signing agreements. And the truth was not being told. But when Ronald Reagan had his first press conference, he said that they have a different morality than we do. The only morality they recognize is what will further their cause, meaning they reserve unto themselves the right to commit any crime, to lie, to cheat, in order to attain that. And that is moral, not immoral. And we operate on a different set of standards I think when you do business with them, uh, even at a detente, you keep that in mind. And he was met with howls of opposition from the, the foreign policy establishment, the intellectual establishment, and the media establishment in this country. And yet everything he said was clinically absolutely correct. When Reagan took office, the days of detente were over. He pumped hundreds of billions of dollars into the Pentagon's arsenal. The Soviets feared he would start World War III. But one of the most effective weapons against the Kremlin turned out to be a coalition of information warriors. We'll hear about their war against Soviet active measures after this short break. Today, John Lanchowski runs the Institute of World Politics, an independent graduate school of national security affairs in Washington. But 40 years ago, he was a foot soldier in the fight against the KGB's lies when he became a charter member of the Active Measures Working Group. Ronald Reagan is inaugurated in January 1981, and You sign up. You're a committed Cold Warrior. What's your first job? I was hired at the Department of State as Special Assistant for Policy to Assistant Secretary Lawrence Eagleberger, who was Assistant Secretary for European Affairs. And John, when did you first become aware in your position in the Reagan administration of Soviet active measures? Well, really, from the very beginning, I had studied Soviet propaganda and active measures beforehand. I was extremely concerned about these issues because the Soviets manifestly were uh, devoting huge resources 
to propaganda and disinformation and subversion of different kinds, covert influence operations. And we were not collecting intelligence on it, to my knowledge. The foreign policy community in Washington was totally ignoring it. You won't find any articles about this in the prominent journals of foreign policy opinion. And yet, we're supposedly in a Cold War. And so, what you know, what's a Cold War? Is it just submarines playing hide-and-seek or aircraft, uh, you know, over the Bering Straits intercepting each other? No, those are manifestations of potential hot war. The Cold War was a war, ultimately, of two philosophies of life, two philosophies of government. It was a war of information and of ideas, and the United States had no warriors in that war. So in October 1981, the Active Measures Working Group publishes its first report on Soviet active measures. It's only four pages long, but it has an amazing story in it. Tell that story. It reveals that the Soviet Union has a major apparatus that is devoted to a creation of false information that is designed to elicit a policy response. Propaganda can also have uh, lots of false information in it as well. But active measures, there are a couple of definitions of the term. One is that it, it consists of disinformation, forgeries, and covert political influence operations. And, and that is a kind of a puristic uh, definition of the term. But it can also include, uh, if you want to expand the covert influence operations part of it a little bit more, into such things as distraction, propaganda of the deed, which can include terrorism and assassination. And so defining the term was an important part of that initial publication and to and to show the world that the the Soviets were well organized to do these things and that they were actually doing them. Let's talk about one of those examples, John. In late 1979, agents of the Soviet Union spread a false rumor that the United States was responsible for the seizure of the Grand Mosque in Mecca. There were anti-American demonstrations in two other countries today, Turkey and Bangladesh. The demonstrators erroneously believed there was American involvement in the seizure of the Grand Mosque in Mecca. This information came not only by agents who were planting it in different places, but it was being broadcast first to Iran. And so this goes to Iran. It ends up spreading like wildfire through the Arab world, and it makes its way to the streets of Islamabad, the capital of Pakistan, where a mob forms, and without asking any questions as to whether this information is true or not, they march down the street to the U.S. Embassy, set it on fire, and burn it to smithereens. Two more bodies were recovered from the top floor of the embassy today, near the vault where 80 embassy employees locked themselves in to escape the demonstrators during the siege. They bring the total dead to four, including an American Marine Guard and a warrant officer. So the Active Measures Working Group tells the CIA and American ambassadors, be on the lookout for incendiary lies like that. And then your leader goes on a world tour. 
speaking to foreign diplomats and foreign reporters to raise awareness about Soviet disinformation. You're sending out a red alert, aren't you? We had to task CIA to change its priorities to start collecting on this, and we tasked the diplomatic corps to do so. And they came in with all kinds of cable traffic and reports of disinformation uh, that they were seeing being published in selected uh, you know, newspapers around because the Soviets had their agents of influence. There were a couple of newspapers in India, for example. The Soviets devoted more resources to anti-American propaganda and disinformation in the Indian subcontinent than anywhere else in the world for the strategic purpose of separating the world's oldest democracy from the world's largest democracy. And, and we would see an article appear there was clearly a tissue of lies. Our diplomats flagged it, sent it back to us. We were able to put it in our databases, analyze it, and develop patterns. And so a story appears in India. Then the next thing, it appears in Brazil. Then it metastasizes throughout Latin America. Then it bounces its way back into Europe. Now the whole world is, is filled with this story. And it was only when we had a big coordinated interagency uh, intelligence collection effort on this that we could figure all of this out. We knew it was happening, but it wasn't till we did this coordinated effort. So armed with all this intelligence, our truth squad, so to speak, went out on the road. They went to visit with foreign ministries. Uh, they went to, to visit with major media organs, particularly amongst our allies in Europe. They, they tried to, to disseminate this information as far and wide as, as possible. So how would you actually convince people that a story is really fake news? There are a couple of different ways. In some cases, and some of the most dangerous forgeries that have been issued were um, where the, the KGB would create a, a, a U.S. government document that uh, they would then share with a, uh, uh, another government. And we could go and, and take a look at that forged document and show that the stationery, which may purport to be some kind of Pentagon stationery, is simply inauthentic. And we could show the people what the real stationery looks like. And we can also show that in the language of the document, there may be inaccuracies, uh, there may be grammatical errors, syntactical errors, idiomatic errors, where they would be using expressions that might be... Uh, the sort of thing that they would say, but which idiomatically do not translate into our language. And so there are, there are a number of these types of methods. John, in the spring of 1984, Reagan is running for re-election, and you have a seat at the National Security Council at the time. You catch wind that the Soviets are running active measures to defeat Reagan. They're in this country trying to screw with the election. You write a mind-boggling memo to your boss at the National Security Council, Admiral John Poindexter. You told him the Soviets devote a massive amount of resources to influence American voters. What were they doing? I'm reporting that the Soviets, first of all, are extremely conscious about American elections. 
and they want to try to influence our voters. And of course, one of the ways of doing this is to portray the president as uh, a reckless threat to peace. The Soviets have the capacity to turn the tone knob in, in the atmospherics of our relations. And whenever we did anything that they didn't like, they would start beating the war drums, they'd start making threats, they'd accuse us of reckless, dangerous behavior in the world with dire warnings about what the adverse consequences of our actions are. And whenever we did anything that they wanted us to do, like sign an arms control agreement with them and have a champagne treaty signing ceremonies and a lot of kissing, you know, then it was all sweetness and light. And at the same time, there's another contest coming. The 1984 Summer Olympics are set for Los Angeles. And the KGB wants to screw with the games, too. The Attorney General of the United States today publicly and formally charged the Soviet Union with practicing international terrorism by hate mail. So one of the things that they did was they issued some posters and pamphlets allegedly published by the Ku Klux Klan that published terrible invective against Africans, for example, a caricature of what American racism allegedly was at the time. The letters sent before the Olympics claimed to be from the Ku Klux Klan. They had warned the athletes, our Olympic flames are ready to incinerate you. In a Chicago speech, the attorney general said that American intelligence had shown the letters to be classic examples of Soviet disinformation. They were not produced or sent by the Ku Klux Klan. They were instead manufactured and mailed by another organization devoted to terror, the KGB. The Soviets have attempted to divide our country for the longest time and have attempted to exploit uh, racial divisions and other ethnic divisions, religious divisions even, in the United States. Uh, and, and of course, their principal target has been the black community in our country. The, the Soviets were hoping to radicalize and help radical blacks in the United States to create a revolutionary situation here that would disrupt and destabilize our country. John, in Washington, interagency working groups are where good ideas go to die, as a rule. But the Active Measures Working Group has quite a legacy. What is the legacy of the Active Measures Working Group, and why don't we have one today? Well, uh, I believe that it has an excellent legacy as being an extremely successful interagency group, which was able to engage in an integrated strategic effort to collect intelligence, analyze intelligence, uh, declassify it, publicize it, and make it part of our public diplomacy, our domestic information policy, and our bilateral relations with foreign countries. There are few interagency groups that have a record of that much success. In late 1984, as President Reagan was running for re-election, the Active Measures Working Group fell on hard times. Its first leader moved on. 
The new one was incompetent. The group lost its focus. And when it faltered, a secretive team within the Reagan administration tried to take its place. But they went rogue. This group's members included a gung-ho Marine named Oliver North. It was led by a career CIA officer detailed to the White House. They ginned up propaganda aimed primarily at Americans, not at the Soviets. That is to say, they planted false stories in the American press. On the eve of the 1984 election, they put out the bogus claim that the Soviets were sending fighter jets to the Sandinista government in Nicaragua. NBC News broke into its election night coverage with that report. Well, as we were saying a few moments ago, the president was told tonight that the Soviet Union has shipped anywhere from 12 to 18 MiG-21s to Nicaragua. He was told that tonight as he was celebrating an election victory of landslide proportions, both in the popular vote and in the Electoral College vote in California. It was a lie. Colonel North and company had been trying to achieve something the CIA might attempt in a foreign country, using political warfare against their own people in order to shift public opinion in favor of the Reagan administration. Their effort fell apart when President Reagan, CIA Director Bill Casey, and Colonel North were caught selling missiles to Iran and slipping the profits to the anti-communist guerrillas in Central America. It was the worst political scandal since Watergate. The Iran-Contra affair. Arms to Iran in exchange for American hostages. The secret foreign policy concealed through dishonesty and deception. Three days before the Iran-Contra scandal erupted, the leading Soviet news outlet, Pravda, ran a crude cartoon making a rather outlandish charge. It was a cartoon that showed on the left-hand side a scientist who was, with his right hand, receiving a wad of bills, U.S. dollar bills. That's Kathleen Bailey, an intelligence analyst who revived the original Active Measures Working Group in 1985. And with his left hand, he was handing over a vial filled with swastikas with a little sign on it saying AIDS virus. And the guy uh, giving the money is military guy. The guy handing over is a U.S. scientist. And the caption says, the AIDS virus, a terrible disease for which up to now no known cure has been found, was, in the opinion of some Western researchers, created in the laboratories of the Pentagon. We'll hear more from Kathleen Bailey right after this break. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. In 1985, Kathleen Bailey was a deputy assistant secretary at the State Department's Bureau of Intelligence and Research, a small and highly effective part of the American intelligence community. 
her boss tapped her to take over the Active Measures Working Group, which had become dysfunctional. At the time, she'd never heard of the group. She soon saw that she had a huge job on her hands. Let's tell people a bit about what was going on in the world of espionage in 1985. In terms of areas of espionage, there were all kinds of infiltrations from Soviet agents into the United States agents of influence. There were forgeries being presented by the KGB to influence not only U.S. public opinion, but also policymakers' understanding of what their own government was doing as well as disinformation campaigns. And all of these things, agents of influence, um, forgeries, disinformation campaigns, came under the rubric of what is called active measures, a term that comes from the Russian for these types of influence activities. The purpose is, is to create discord where they want discord or to bring people along in cases they want people to come along. Just pure manipulation. Now, at the start of your tenure, a huge Russian disinformation campaign had gone on, undetected and uncontested for more than a year. And this was the AIDS hoax. What was it? The AIDS disinformation hoax was a contention that the United States uh, military had engineered the AIDS virus. A Soviet military publication claims the virus that causes AIDS leaked from a U.S. Army laboratory conducting experiments in biological warfare. The article offers no hard evidence, but claims to be reporting the conclusions of unnamed scientists in the United States, Britain, and East Germany. Last October, a Soviet newspaper alleged that the AIDS virus might have been the result of Pentagon or CIA experiments. There were various renditions of the story. Some of them said that the AIDS virus was designed to take out blacks. Others uh, said that they were to uh, attack only Latin Americans. And even one variation said it was to attack Chinese. Um, The story was planted in a uh, Soviet front newspaper called The Patriot in India in 1983. And the story kind of just lay there in waiting uh, as the AIDS virus began to increase in salience throughout 1984. And then in 1985, the Soviets resuscitated the story by publishing it in the Literary Gazette in Moscow. And they quoted their own planted story in The Patriot as the uh, credible source for the AIDS disinformation campaign. Now, this is a kind of information laundering, like money laundering, isn't it? Yes, it is. Let's dive into that a bit. So the Russians, the KGB, would plant a story that they had manufactured in an obscure newspaper in India or in Italy or in Mexico. And then the story would be picked up by their state-run news agencies, by TAS or by Pravda, and broadcast in print and on the radio around the world so that they have cover. Isn't that right? They not only have cover, the multiplicity of sources tends to give credibility 
to a story. And people believed it, didn't they? People believed it, in, in part because I think the Soviets did an excellent job with making sure that they backed things up as they went along. For example, they recruited an East German, quote-unquote, doctor and his uh, supposedly PhD wife to give credibility by concocting a story of just how scientifically this was accomplished. And so these two, quote-unquote, doctors were widely cited as if they were authoritative. So the, the story was bolstered by seeming scientific evidence. So they took the point of view that the AIDS virus was not artificial and then made sure that people were able to delve further in the, into the story, if you will, if they wanted to, and to look for some science behind it. The AIDS hoax wasn't the only game they were playing, was it? The KGB planted stories that the U.S. had developed a biological toxin, a, an ethnic weapon, designed to kill black and brown-skinned people. They also spread the rumor that the Americans were arranging for the killing of Latin American babies to harvest their body parts for organ transplants. The main target of this propaganda was not an American audience, was it? It, it was the third world. That's right. Um, the initial target audience was the third world. And the Soviets were very accomplished at that. You know, they had literally scores of news outlets and newspapers that they quote-unquote, owned and financed in the third world and were propagating these stories regularly in order to discredit the United States and to drive wedges. It wasn't just in the third world, though. The same sort of thing was happening in NATO countries. And the point here is not to create outrage. It's to rub salt in the great wound in the American body politic, the wound of racism. Well, this kind of comes back to having a, a kernel of truth to a disinformation story. There has to be a wound to rub salt into to get people to react. And that's very, very helpful to any disinformation campaign. You look for stories that will cause disruption and have a, an historical appeal to people based on those grievances of the past or grievances that have come forward even to, into the present. So in October 1986, the biggest news organization in Russia, Pravda, ran a crude cartoon on its front page. This got a lot of play around the world, didn't it? It certainly did. And we decided in the Active Measures Working Group to give it even more play. We put it on the front of our a uh, 1987 document put out by the Department of State on Soviet influence activities, because I thought it not only showed what an excellent capability the Soviets had in terms of good, solid manipulation, but also it would help people in the United States audience, at least, understand what we are confronting with in terms of disinformation activities. By this time, by the end of 1986, the AIDS hoax had surfaced in at least 60 nations, very much including the United States. And I've seen polls 
showing that millions of Americans still believe it to be true today, particularly African Americans. So how did you go about fighting this charge? Even I needed to prove to myself that the story was wrong. I felt in my gut it was wrong, but I needed proof. And so throughout the end of 1985 and into 1986, I worked very, very hard. I visited Fort Detrick, Maryland, where I interviewed people. I called scientists. I visited scientists. I worked very hard to understand how a virus could be possibly engineered and what we knew about the AIDS virus. I had to satisfy myself by writing a very uh, cohesive yet understandable explanation of why the story was disinformation and not information. I wanted to make sure that the Active Measures Working Group, for example, was never engaged in its own active measures. In other words, we would only expose what active measures they were doing and explain why they were wrong. We would never try to introduce disinformation ourselves or to use our podium as a means to uh, engage in similar activities. In other words, we wanted to do good and seek the truth and not do bad. And that may sound simplistic and also naive, but you have to have standards. I'm trying to imagine you interviewing a two-star general at Fort Detrick and saying, so General, you, you didn't manufacture the AIDS virus here, did you? That's exactly what happened. I went and I asked the questions and interviewed several officials there, both in the military and on the civilian side. I talked to them about the history of Fort Detrick and got an understanding that the biological weapons activities there had ceased and that the AIDS virus could not have been invented in a laboratory. I I had a, a gut feeling that the story was preposterous, and they knew it was preposterous. And so when we f- first began to speak together, I explained that I was a novice. I didn't believe the story, but I needed to refute it in a way that was convincing to not only myself, but to anybody else that would read what I wrote and that they needed to help me. And they took their obligations seriously. And it was no laughing matter. They went through the reasoning with me. I then went and found some independent scientists unassociated with the military or with the government. And using what I had learned from Fort Detrick, uh, explored a way to explain why AIDS could not have been manufactured in a laboratory. So in 1987, you worked with your team at the Active Measures Working Group to put together a really powerful report, a counterpunch against the KGB. And it ran to 101 pages. It's like an encyclopedia of lies and propaganda. Among the many readers of your report was the Soviet leader, Mikhail Gorbachev. And he sat down at the Kremlin in October 1987 with the Secretary of State, George Shultz. And your work came up, didn't it? What happened? 
It turns out that uh, Gorbachev had a copy of the report with him, annotated in fact, and he brought it up to Schultz and said, you know, this is uh, an example of why we can't move forward with more interactions together as countries when you attack us in this way with a report like this. Schultz didn't even know about the report, but he responded by trying to go on the counterattack and basically had no good answer because he was unfamiliar with the contents of the report and didn't know what, what Gorbachev was talking about. He's blindsided, Schultz was. But it was in his briefing book. Yes, it was. So they get in the hell of an argument, Gorbachev and Secretary of State Schultz. And the minutes uh, reflect this. The secretary says he will not dignify uh, Gorbachev's comment with a response. Gorbachev says he will ignore the secretary's remarks as well. And a shadow falls over this glittering room in the Kremlin. And when Schultz comes back to Washington, he's pissed, isn't he? He was. Um, I... I remember somebody told me, uh, I understand you're in dark doo-doo. And I said, what? And they said, uh, Schultz is mad at you and your active measures working group. You caused him embarrassment, personal embarrassment. And I thought, what kind of person is that? He didn't read the report. If he had, he would have been impressed and probably been able to counter the arguments very effectively because we gave him all the ammunition he would need. And then to come back and be upset with the very group that was being as truthful and careful and documentary as they could be, it was just beyond me. But George Schultz, generally regarded as the least militant member of uh, a very hawkish Reagan cabinet, decides he's going to break up your group and scatter it to the four winds, doesn't he? Well, uh, that's apparently what he decided because that's kind of where it went. What happened? I was soon offered a position with the Arms Control and Disarmament Agency. Uh, so I left and did not witness the total dismemberment. But as I understand it, the group was pretty much disbanded. And ultimately, the, the final report that came out of it took two and a half years to put together. And uh, the U.S. Information Agency tried to keep things going, but couldn't. And so the whole thing fizzled and died. In late 1988, the FBI assigned a new agent to the Active Measures Working Group. His name was Robert Hansen. And for a while, he was in charge of running it. In fact, he was running it into the ground. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Louis Free, the FBI director. Sunday night, as you heard, the FBI arrested Robert Philip Hansen, who was charged with committing espionage. Hansen is a special agent of the FBI. Hansen had been spying for the Kremlin since 1979. He gave them the names of all the KGB officers secretly working for the CIA and the FBI. He told them how to stop America's codebreakers from reading Moscow's secret cables. He revealed that the FBI was tunneling under the new Soviet embassy in Washington. In short, he handed over the keys to the kingdom of American intelligence. He wasn't arrested until 2001. The Active Measures Working Group has been out of business since the end of the Cold War. But its legacy lives on 
Coming up, we'll hear Kathleen Bailey's thoughts on that legacy. Kathleen Bailey carried out her work fighting fake news from Russia more than 30 years ago. But as she explained to me, the importance of that work and its lessons for today remain as urgent as ever. You know, sometimes when we have our heads deep down into a major project, whether it's a really important report, a book, something big, it takes some time and distance to see the import and the meaning of what we're doing. Looking back now from a distance of more than 30 years and knowing what disinformation, Russian disinformation, has done to this country, what was the meaning of your work? I think the meaning was to give the groundwork for journalists and people who care to understand what is happening to us and play a role in how to combat it. We can beat this. We can win. We don't have to have any president that gives in to disinformation or propagates it. We do not have to have active measures uh, working against us. We can combat them. So the Cold War comes to a close, and the active measures working group passes into history. But given what the Russians have done to America, in the realm of disinformation, their attack on the 2016 election, their ongoing attacks, even as we speak. Don't you think the Active Measures Working Group stands a chance of being revived one day? I hope not. Why not? Because I believe that in today's environment, it would be politicized. We succeeded in preventing the politicization of the Active Measures Working Group with tenacity, and we also declined to do things that maybe some of the Reaganauts wanted done. And I'm afraid that nobody could stand up the kind of organization that we succeeded. Now, that may sound egotistical, that, oh, only I could do it, but my environment was so different and the protections I had were so strong that I was able to do that job. So it wasn't just that I did it. It was that I was enabled to do it. And so to me today, the Active Measures Working Group's mission should pass to a totally different entity. It should be financed or put together, in my view, by journalists who care and who can put together a fact-checking organization and pool resources and seek funding from uh, sources other than the government, people who believe in the truth as much as we can find it. And so that's what I think should happen. Dr. Bailey, you want us poor, ink-stained wretches, the people who put together American journalism, to go up against Vladimir Putin and his Department of Disinformation? You bet I do. By the time the Active Measures Working Group broke up, the Cold War was history. As the dust settled on nearly 50 years of ideological struggle, it seemed like the United States 
stood astride the world like a colossus, just like it had after World War II. The prevailing wisdom in the high councils of Washington was that almost every nation in the world wanted to be friends with the United States. With a few exceptions, like North Korea and Iran, everyone wanted to embrace democracy, and everybody loved America, even the Russians. Or so we wanted to believe. In the 1990s, the U.S. set out to make Russia more like America, a democracy with a free market economy where political power was apportioned through free elections. The effort failed, and we're living with the consequences today. That's the next episode of Whirlwind. Whirlwind is presented by Cadence 13, Jigsaw Productions, and Prologue Projects. The show is written by me, Tim Weiner, and produced by Noel Mosban, Andrew Parsons, and Leon Nefa, with editorial support from Madison White. The story is based on my book, The Folly and the Glory, America, Russia, and Political Warfare. Whirlwind is executive produced by Chris Corcoran, Alex Gibney, Stephen Fisher, Stacey Offman, Richard Perello, Joey Mara, and John Schmidt. They said it couldn't be done. They say it bordered on impossible. When someone says I can't do something, I usually agree with them. (laughs) And now, against all odds, this completely mediocre comedy podcast has done the unthinkable. They got listeners. We got listeners. No way. Amazing. Now available on the Odyssey app or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm so happy we're at Odyssey now. Oh my God, they're amazing. The Commercial Break Podcast. You heard it here last.